Um, This morning we are continuing our Advent series. Our Advent series is called Behold. It's the word up there on the screens for you. Behold. Um, This is a command. This is an imperative command given to us in Scripture on a number of different occasions. Um, Some of them particularly during the Christmas story. Um, Like last week when we talked about how the angel says, Behold, I bring you good news of great joy. It's what the uh, Westons just read to us actually. Um, But this week, we're not looking at one of the traditional Christmas passages for Behold. We're looking at a passage from Revelation, which talks about the second coming of the Lord. So Advent forces us to look backward. We look backward at the time Jesus did come, but it also should call us to look forward to the time when he will come. So we're going to read Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 to 8. It will be on the screen, or feel free to open up your Bibles. I'm reading from the English Standard Version this morning. If I can find it. All right, Revelation 1, 4 through 8. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of earth, on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your word. Um, uh, I pray, Lord, that this word would not just be something that goes to our heads and that, that we know things about you, but that we would know things about you in our hearts that we would know you more deeply through this passage, that it would change us from the inside out, that it would cause us to, to let go of the things we're holding on to that are not you, so we can grasp more tightly to you. Um, yes, Lord, pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So when I was growing up, or it's actually a much older song than that, um, there's a song that I remember singing, and I didn't know if I knew how old it was, but it's a song, if you are an American in here with me, um, you would probably know, and maybe some of you others. It's called, She'll Be Coming Round the Mountain When She Comes. Now, I know the Americans know it. I'm not sure how many of the rest of you know it. But it's just this children's song. She'll be coming round the mountain when she comes. Yeehaw! She'll be coming round the mountain when she comes. And then it goes in the second verse, and the second verse is like, She'll be riding six white horses when she comes. And for some reason, as I was thinking about, behold, God is, Jesus is coming. That's what this passage is about. Behold, he is coming. This song kept getting stuck in my head. He's coming, he's coming. This song is, she's coming around the mountain. Who in the world is this she in this song? She'll be coming around the mountain. Who is she? And how in the world is one person riding six white horses? I don't know, I just don't understand. What is this song all about? It doesn't really make much sense. So I started to look it up just out of curiosity. It's what I do. I get on Wikipedia and start reading. And as I was reading, I found out that this song is actually an old song sung by slaves called Behold, or sorry, it's called When the Chariot 
comes, when the chariot comes. So the she in that song, for those of you who are curious, is actually the chariot that is being ridden by God. By God to come. So this is actually a song that would have been sung by slaves in the midst of their oppression, in the midst of their hardship, as they look forward to that day, that day that's coming when the chariot will come around that mountain. One of my favorite verses in the song, the original song, is King Jesus, he'll be driving when it comes. King Jesus, he'll be driving when it comes. What this this song did is it allowed these slaves in their hardship to keep their eyes up to the sky, to behold the fact that one day this hardship, this struggle, this pain will come to an end when King Jesus comes on his chariot being pulled by six white horses. This passage doesn't talk about six white horses. It doesn't talk about um, about a mountain or anything like that, but it does kind of talk about a chariot. It says, Jesus, behold, he will come on, behold, he is coming with the clouds, or on the clouds, you might see it translated. Literally in the Bible, it talks about Jesus is going to come riding on the clouds as if they're his chariot. Jesus is going to come victoriously like a king returning to earth to take what is his. This is good news. Jesus is coming back. So uh, the, really, the question that John wants to answer in this passage as he's writing this um, to the seven churches is he's trying to ask, who is it? Literally, who is this guy that is coming back? And obviously we know the answer is Jesus. Jesus is coming back. But he wants us to know who is Jesus in this passage. He particularly focuses on two characteristics about this coming Jesus that I want to focus on this morning. The first is that Jesus is powerful. And the second is that Jesus is good. Jesus is powerful. Jesus is good. The one who is coming is powerful. The one who is coming is good. And this is good news for us. The first bit of good news is that he's powerful, as I just mentioned. Um, but before we talk about how this passage talks about Jesus' power, um, I want to talk through the opening of this passage and maybe kind of explain what's going on here for those of you who are reading it with me. Um, it says, John to the seven churches in Asia. So this is John writing particularly to the seven churches throughout Asia that he had some sort of ministry to. Um, but the usage of the number seven, whenever you see that in Scripture, should always ring a bell. Like, something's going on here. He's trying to make a statement. Because seven, in the Bible, is symbolic of completeness, of completion, of fullness. And so, what John is saying is, I'm writing to these seven particular churches, which he names in a, a little bit after this passage. But also, this isn't just for them. This is for the whole church, in all places, at all times. This is an important message for you. And who does this message come from? He says it comes from the triune God. It comes from all three persons of the Trinity. First, he mentions the Father. He calls him the one who is and who was and who is to come. What he's doing there, um, if you were able to read it in its Greek, is he's basically giving God the name that God has given himself. He's saying, who is? How does God identify himself? He identifies himself as I am. I am, the one who is, the one who says, I am. And I am has got a a temporal 
no temporal limits because I am states that he is now, he was before, and he will be in the future. And what is he? He is the covenant-keeping, promise-keeping God, the God that always keeps his promises no matter what, who always is faithful to his people. This is who this message is from, that Jesus is coming back, the faithful, covenant-keeping God. And also, it says, the seven spirits who are before his throne. The seven spirits is one of these symbolic ways of of John talking about the Holy Spirit. The seven spirits, seven meaning whole, complete, talking about the great spirit, the spirit that is all-consuming, the Holy Spirit. And then, of course, he talks about Jesus, the Son, the other person of the Trinity. And it's interesting to note here that when he talks about Jesus, he slows down for a minute. And he says a lot more about Jesus than he says about the other two persons. Is that because Jesus is more important? No. But Jesus, this is important throughout the whole Bible, is the one who has revealed to us most clearly and most fully who God is. Jesus is the word of God. Jesus is the revelation of God. When he came to earth 2,000 years ago, He revealed to us, both through his actions, through his death, through his resurrection, through his teaching, who God is, what he is like to us. So Jesus reveals to us who God is. And it's important to note, especially for this passage, is that the Jesus that came 2,000 years ago and was born in that manger is the same Jesus that is coming back in the future on that day. Behold, He is coming with the clouds. So what does it say about Jesus? You'll see that there's two sets of three characteristics that are said about Jesus. The first set says he is a faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of earth. The second set of three says to him who loves us, who has freed us from our sin by his blood and who has made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father. The first set of three tells us that he is powerful. First two descriptors here. So what's the first of those three descriptors? It says he is a faithful witness. Faithful witness. What is that talking about? What is he a faithful witness to? Well, actually what John's doing here is he is referencing um, Psalm 89. Actually, the psalm that we read our call to worship from this morning. In Psalm 89... The psalmist talks about a faithful witness, and he's talking about how this faithful witness is going to witness to God's rule and reign over the world. It says this, Psalm 89, 36, and 37, his offspring shall endure forever, his throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. So just as the moon is in the skies, the psalmist is saying, it is a faithful witness that God, his reign, his rule will last forever. Just as the moon is always there when you look up into the the night sky, in the same way God's kingdom will forever be there. And now we don't have to look at the moon as the faithful witness, according to um, John here, we're saying we look back at Jesus, and particularly one moment of Jesus' life which establishes his rule, and that is his death. You see the word for witness? It's a play on words going on here a little bit. The word for witness is actually the same word from which we get the word martyr. 
martyr. To witness means to testify to something in Greek, but it also means to die for something. Jesus establishes the reign of God in this world through his death. Of course, the Israelites, the Jews at the time when Jesus came, they were expecting this Messiah to come and win a whole bunch of military victories against the Romans and and establish the nation of Israel on earth. And Jesus says, no, actually, my main triumph, my main display of force is going to surprise you because it isn't the death of others, it's my death. Jesus says, I'm going to go to the cross, and on the cross, I am going to go to a cosmic battle against your sins. On the cross is the ultimate display of God's forever kingdom because it is there that the fullness of sin is placed on Jesus. The fullness of our shame and our guilt is placed on Jesus, and Jesus takes it with him to the grave. Jesus is saying, I am so powerful that I can take on the sin of God the world. Jesus is kind of a little bit like Gandalf here. Maybe you've seen the Lord of the Rings, um, particularly the Fellowship of the Ring, the first one, or read the books. Um, Gandalf, the wizard, uh, he's presented as this kindly old man who does some magic tricks and shoots some fireworks and, and does some, he's really friendly and wise and um, he does, you know, he knows a little bit of magic, but you don't really see him as this strong and powerful wizard until he's in the mines of Moria and this gigantic flaming creature is attacking them. And he all of a sudden comes out of nowhere with a show of force and stands up against this Balrog. In fact, giving his life in the process to take it down into the depths. Jesus, sometimes we think of him as like, oh, he's just a, you know, he has a good teacher. He was kind. He welcomed the children to come to him. And he just loved people so well. He like healed people who were blind. All this really beautiful stuff. But really, we, we forget sometimes that he is powerful. He's so powerful that he can take on sin and destroy it. He shows us this big moment on the cross. So what John is saying, he's saying, behold, the one who is coming, the one who is coming is the one who has the power over your sin, power to destroy it and power to fix it. But Jesus not only has the power over sin, he also has the power of death. Because, of course, he goes to the depths with our sin. He dies But he doesn't stay dead. He leaves our sin in the grave and then he rises from the dead, proving that he has the power over death. That's what it's talking about here when it says he is the faithful witness and it says next, the firstborn of the dead, meaning he is the firstborn of the dead, implying that there will be many more after him. He begins the process of life defeating Death. And so what John is saying is, behold, the one who is coming is also the one who can reverse death. Where there is death, he can bring life. Where there is sickness, he can bring health. Where there is misery, he can bring joy. Where there is pain, he can bring comfort. Jesus has not only the power over wrongdoing, he also has the power over the effects of sin in this world, namely death. Behold, the one 
who is coming. Let us put our eyes up and see that he is the one who has the power over death. And then third in this section, we see that Jesus has the power over the rulers of the earth. It says, verse 5, and and ruler of the kings on earth. He is the ruler of all of the powers of this world. So any, way, any places in this world where you see people in power, even the most powerful of all people, God, Jesus, has power over all of them. And this is a really good thought. This is really thank, we can be really thankful for this because how, often, how do we often see power used? When people have power... Almost always, it's used for personal gain. It leads to corruption. It's used for exploitation for, of others. It's used for personal pride and lifting yourself up. It's used for perpetuating injustice or maybe just perpetuating a system that is just towards others but unjust towards um, other people. Power is so often used Um, wrongly, that it's good to know that Jesus himself has power over the most powerful. He is ultimately in control. And he is the one who has the power to remove corruption, has the power to remove injustice, and has the power to remove selfishness. Behold, this is the one who is coming, says John. He's powerful. Jesus, the one who is coming, is powerful over sin, over death, over um, earthly power. But he's also good. He's also good. And that's where John goes next at the second half of verse 5. The first thing he says is probably the most powerful thing anybody could say of anything that could be true about Jesus. Um, But it's something we hear too much, I think. Well, not too much. We should hear it more than we do. But it's something we've kind of let our ears just not, kind of just like glaze, we just kind of gloss over when we hear this. It's that Jesus loves you. Jesus loves us. I mean, we sing the song, Jesus loves me, this I know. We talk about Jesus loving you all the time. But do you know that Jesus loves you? Do we know that Jesus loves us? Deeply loves us. That's really good news. Think of someone, think of this. Think of someone you know who truly loves you. Someone, just one person in your life who truly loves you. You know they love you. It's obvious they love you. Um, think about the, the glances they give you, the knowing glances, or the looks of affirmation they give you. Think about the words that they say to build you up or to encourage you or to lift you up when you're down. Think of the, uh, maybe the acts of service they provide tell you they love you, or the gifts, the thoughtful gifts they give you, to let you know that they know what's going on with you, and they know what you love, and they love you. Think of the quality time they spend with you on a regular basis. Jesus loves you in these ways. Jesus looks at you. Jesus affirms you and tells you he loves you, and tells you you're special to him. Jesus gives you what you need. Jesus never gets tired of spending time with you. 
He never gets exhausted by your screw-ups. He never abandons you. He delights in you. He wants to be with you. Jesus loves us way more than that person you were thinking of. Anyways, even the people we know who love us the most, they don't love us perfectly. Jesus does love us perfectly, completely selflessly. He longs to spend time with us. This is really good news because the one who is coming on the clouds that great, in that great cloud chariot with all of his glory comes with love for you in his heart as he does. He's coming. The one who comes loves you. And we know he loves us because of the second thing that's said here. The second thing says that it says, to him who loves us, and has freed us from our sins by his blood. You see, Jesus hasn't just defeated sin in some sort of cosmic, general concept. He's also defeated our sin because he loves us. He, it's a very personal taking on of sin because he's taking it from us and he's putting it on himself. He is dying so that we might live, so that we might be reconciled to God so that we might be freed from the guilt and the shame and of that sin causes in our lives. This is what Jesus does. Jesus not only only has freed us from sins in the past and all the guilt and shame that we feel there, he's also freed us in advance from all the guilt and shame we will do, we will cause for ourselves in the future. Jesus has taken all of this on himself on the cross. And the good news is you don't have to bear that guilt or that shame anymore. If you come in here this morning and you are in Christ, if you know Jesus, if he is your savior, then you do not have to bear guilt and shame. You don't. It has been taken from you on Jesus. God looks at you with kind, loving eyes, even in the midst of your sin, because Jesus has already taken the penalty for your sin and has cleared your guilt and your shame. Behold, the one who is coming loves you and has cleared you of guilt and shame by his own death. The third thing he does that is so good is that he calls us into a community with a purpose. He says, and he has made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father. What this is saying is that God has pointed to us and said, hey, I want you to be a part of my team. I want you to be my representatives. I want you guys to be my diplomats, my ambassadors to the world. Which is kind of a crazy thought because think about the kinds of people that Jesus picks for himself to do this. Not even thinking about ourselves, thinking about the disciples, right? The, the 12 disciples he picked, among them you see uh, thieves, you see liars, you see zealots, um, you see deniers, you see a lot of people who are uneducated, um, you see people who are frowned on by society, you see people who are boasters and arrogant, you also see people who are doubters, who don't fully believe, and even you see a betrayer. I know when you guys are growing up, if you played, a, uh, played dodgeball um, with your, at your school or maybe your youth group or something, and I don't know, when I was growing up, I remember like 
you know, dodgeball was always done this way. You get the two captains, right? You pick the two, maybe the two strongest people out there, and you get them on two different teams, and they take turns picking who they want on their team to represent them, to help them win and accomplish their mission. And, of course, what do they do? You start, you pick the biggest, strongest, fastest guy. I want him on my team. And the next person picks the second biggest, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, until you come down to the dreaded last pick. The last person picked, it's always like this. Okay, I guess we have to take you, right? There's no excitement about the last pick. You're just like, all right, well, that's what we're left with, so we'll make do. God, Jesus, when he picks his team, he starts from the bottom, and then he goes up. Because it's not about how great they are. It's about he is going to show their glory, his glory, through them. God picks us, people like us, people like me, people like you, to be on his team to serve as his priests, meaning serve as his people who are going to point others to him. He says, I want you as you are. You know, when God calls you, when God calls you to be his, his follower, when God calls you to be his person, he already knows about your weaknesses. And he already knows about your future sins. And he already knows about your future failures when he picks you. He's not surprised by them. But yet he uses those, even those, even our failures and our struggles as an opportunity for us to point away from ourselves and to him. God loves the underdog. God loves to pick people who we would never pick. It's good news. The church is his family. The church is his kingdom as a part of, and I'm not just talking about United Church, I'm talking about the church worldwide is the, the body of believers worldwide that God is using to further his mission, his mission of restoring the world, his mission of pointing people to himself as the hope, and his mission of reminding and preparing <clears throat> the world for his coming return. Behold, the one who is coming is good because the one who is coming chooses people even like us to be on his team. God is powerful and God is good. A God who is all-powerful but is not good would be a tyrant. We don't want that. That was like a terrible, terrible thing to have a God who is all-powerful but not good. Alternatively, to have a God who is good, but not all-powerful, is a pretty hopeless thing. We can't really do much. But a God who is good and powerful is what we have. Behold, the one who is coming is both good and powerful. And this should give us great excitement and great hope in the midst of whatever we are going through. Because here's what's true. The one who can fix all things is coming to do so. And also, the one who loves you more than you could ever imagine, who has you in his heart, even now, is also the one who has those, that power to fix everything. We can trust that, that God what should this call us to? This should call us to keep our eyes up, to behold, to look, anticipate his coming, to watch the mountain, to see when he's going to come around it, right? To keep our eyes up saying, this, what I'm living right now is not the end of the story, that is. 
And what does that do for us? That means our current circumstances will not define our happiness, will not define our, um, will, will not get cynical about our, our current circumstances because we know that one day Jesus is coming to fix them. Jesus is coming to make things right. It will keep us from putting our hope in what we can control and change here on earth. It keeps us from putting our hope in where we see our lives going in their current state because we know that Jesus is coming and he is going to make all things new and he loves us deeply. It causes us to have perseverance in the midst of trials, in the midst of struggles that we're going through because we know it's not the end of the story. It gives us a longing to, to love him more because we know who this God is who's coming, to be excited about his coming, to, to repent quickly of our sins and to go back to him and say, Lord, I want to live for you. I want to be a kingdom of priests as you have called me to be. I want to be someone who points to the others to their need for you because I know you so deeply. It calls us to point others to him. I want to close with this. I know, I know at, uh, at Christmas time, a lot of times we invite people into our church who don't always come to, to church, and we are just really, really thankful to have you here. I just think it's awesome that you are here with us. Um, but I do want to, I want to say this. I know that I could be talking about this Jesus, and you might be sitting there thinking, I don't know that Jesus. I don't know him. I don't know kind of love you're talking about. I don't know the kind of power you're talking about, the kind of hope you're talking about. I don't know that he is the ultimate fulfillment to my longings. I don't know that he is the ultimate solution to my pain. I just want to tell you, he is. He is. And it's open to you. His love is available to you. This God isn't just a God for other people. This is your God. This is the God who made you. His love is open to you. I would love to talk to you about what it would mean to know this God. Um, not just me. This is a community of priests. Kingdom of, a, community, a kingdom community. These are God's people. Talk to others. You should be the people as well those of you who know Jesus, to talk to others about it. So have these conversations. We'd love to talk to you about what it would mean to follow Jesus yourself and to know him so deeply as I know him. For all of us, wherever we are, I just call us to behold. Behold the one who is coming. Behold his power, behold his goodness, and find rest and comfort in that. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much um, for your work on our behalf. Um, thank you so much for coming once already to show us your love for us, to show us your power, um, for dying for us, for rising from the dead, for um, calling people to be yours. Um, and Lord, may we look forward to the day you come and you finally consummate it all and make it all new, make it all right, fix everything, um, create a world there where things work the way they're supposed to and correct relationship with you. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.